My guest today is Zach Cooper. He is a research fellow here at AEI, where he studies U.S. defense strategy in Asia and U.S.-China competition. He's here today to discuss the ongoing trade war between the United States and China and how we might counter China's rising influence in the region. Zach, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks so much for having me. Uh, before we get sort of current, and there's a lot of current events uh, going on, sort of everything happening very quickly here, real time, I just want to kind of take a step back. Back in 2000, when China was admitted to the World Trade Organization, what did people expect to happen with China? What did they think China would look like two decades down the road? And what was the expectation of what America's relationship with China would be? Because I'm guessing it's somewhat different than the reality of today. Yeah, that's right. Well, I think most people would say uh, that they were hoping that China would eventually become a responsible stakeholder. This was the language that Bob Zelik used uh, to US describe. Trade representative. That's right. Yeah, and World Bank had uh, to describe what they hoped China would be, uh, that it would buy into the system, it would accept the international order as it existed, and maybe try and change some elements of the, around the margin, but that China would accept the core of the international order. I think what we're seeing is that that's not been the case, and actually that as China has grown stronger, its increased desire to change the order has manifested in the security area and the economic areas, and that actually internally, whereas many people hoped that its inclusion in the World Trade Organization would encourage China to open up, what we've seen, especially under Xi Jinping, is a closing down. China has been more repressive in the last five years than it has been in quite some time. So both internally and externally, we've seen China go in exactly the opposite of the direction that many people hoped it would go. I mean, was sort of the expectation that it would that its path forward would resemble what we saw in some other Asian nations in which, you know, they became more capitalist. They may have been more authoritarian, but they opened up that I, I don't I'm, you know, I'm not the Asia expert. I'm not sure what the best example of it would be uh, South Korea. But was the expectation that it would follow the model that we've seen in other countries in the region over over the coming decades, but that didn't happen. Absolutely. I, I think South Korea is a great model, Japan too. Uh, and, and I think we have to remember that at the time there was this sense among some that this was the end of history, as right. Francis Fukuyama said, that uh, we were passing by this moment of the Cold War and moving towards a largely democratic world uh, with growing welfare for most people in most parts of the world. And they thought China might fall in this path. And I don't want to suggest that everyone believed that because there were certainly many who were arguing that China wasn't going to reform, it wasn't going to continue to open, and that it wouldn't accept the existing rules. But I think the the consensus in Washington was largely that China would eventually become a responsible stakeholder. You know, after World War II, when you had the, the, the rise of communist China, what they would call Red China back then, I mean, w there was a debate about who lost China, that there was an opportunity for China to have been something else than, than, a, than a, uh, a, a communist country. Is there, is there a debate like that now going, who, who lost China? Who lost the more democratic, capitalist China? Who lost that future? 
Well, absolutely. And and I think, you know, the, the president is arguing that uh, it was Washington that lost China, that we should not have let China into the World Trade Organization, that we allowed China to do a lot of things on the economic mm-hmm. side, whether it was restrictions on market access or violations of intellectual property that encouraged China to not play by the rules and that that was Washington's problem. I think many in Washington will respond that actually uh, no one lost China. China chose to go a different path, and the United States didn't have full control over Beijing's decisions. Uh, And could we have pushed harder at some points? Could we have changed our policies somewhat earlier? Sure, but that it was still worth a try to see if we could integrate China into the order rather than have the situation we find ourselves in now where actually we're, we're struggling to come up with a strategy for how to deal with China. And, and, and people point to the to 2000, the World Trade Organization, like as sort of the key inflection point that perhaps that was, that was I don't know, either our first chance or was that our last chance to really set China on a on a different path, and we didn't, uh, and we missed it. I think that's right. I also think um, if you if you think of the last thirty years or so, the the post Cold War world, uh, and and you think about who's succeeded in that world, I, I think. China is kind of the answer, right? We said at the end of the Cold War that the Cold War was over and Japan had won. I think now a lot of people think the post-Cold War world is ending and China won. Uh, The United States was distracted. Iraq, Afghanistan, you know, the Balkans, Somalia, all of these smaller conflicts. And actually, meanwhile, we let China rise and not follow the rules as it was rising. And so we shouldn't be surprised that we've got the China today that feels like it wants more say, and it's now powerful enough to try and force us to acknowledge its uh, its growing influence around the world. But some of the critics of China policy, and uh, especially sort of more your populace, they seem, to, they seem to say that if we had done something differently than... I guess China wouldn't be the economic competitor it would be today. Yet, if if we had, yeah, you could argue that if we had somehow followed up on the WTO and kind of um, reacted more strongly when when we felt they were not sort of moving in a market direction, you could argue that 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 they would be a richer, more prosperous country today and more of an economic competitor than what they are. Was there? Is there? I mean, it seems to me that there is a group out there that thinks that somehow. We could have kept China forever a much poorer nation that would not be competing with the U.S. on now a host of front of industries, sort of. That, that was the era, that, that we ended up creating this, 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 certainly this economic competitor. We should have just never done it. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but that's kind of, I feel like that's what they're saying. I, I think that's right. And you hear this from both sides. You hear... You hear Hawks saying, look, if we'd really pushed China earlier, then it wouldn't be so strong now. And we would have known earlier when China was weaker that it was challenging the order and we could have kind of gotten it back in the box somehow. Right. That's right. Back in the box. And and then you hear this other argument, which is that, well, the problem was that we never accepted China into the order. Uh, we pushed back too much on China and now we're getting the counter reaction and that in fact, if we had engaged China more early uh, through the 90s, the early 2000s, that you might have a China that does believe in the system, but that some tough U.S. steps 
uh, or some mistakes actually cause China to reassess its decisions. And, you know, there they'll point to the EP3 incident that happened in 2001. They'll point to the bombing of the Chinese embassy uh, back in the 90s. They'll point to um, the Taiwan Straits crisis in 95, 96 as, as moments when the U.S. pushed do, do, too Do they hard. point to the financial crisis as sort of casting, casting aspersions on American-style capitalism, that maybe that's not the model we should follow? Does that play a role, do you think? Uh, absolutely. And, and I think if you were really trying to judge when China changed over the last 20 years, the financial crisis is the first point to look. Uh, around 2008, 2009, you start to see China becoming much more assertive, and not just in the economic domain, in the security area as well. And then I think the second breakpoint may be closer to 2012, when Xi Jinping takes over, and he's a much different leader than the two leaders that preceded him. He sees himself as much stronger, and uh, he really is desiring to put China back in the place it was in for millennia as the center of Asia. And so I think you can point back to the financial crisis and then to Xi Jinping's coming in as general secretary as, as maybe the two points in the last decade that are probably the, the clearest indicators of us facing a new China. And, and do, do you think there could have been things done between 2000 today that would have substantially changed China's current direction, what that country looks like today, the relationship with the United States, or it's a it's a very big country that decided to modernize, decided to open up enough to foreign investment and and even a, a even on their their own version of capitalism, turning out a lot of engineers that China was going to rise and it's a it's a very old culture and maybe they were always going to end up in this place. Or something we could have done I, my personal view is is no. We were always going to get a China that looked a little bit like this. Uh, I say that because my my dissertation research, and I'm writing a book about this now, looks at rising powers and declining powers, and and how they alter their strategies as they rise and decline. And you know, China is following a classic rising power path. It's a huge country, huge population. It, as it developed, it was always going to have more expansive desires uh, economically, politically, diplomatically, militarily. And so I think the path China is following isn't one that we should be surprised about. But I, I would say it, there are some breakpoints where you could have imagined a somewhat different world. So in 2001, right before September 11th, the U.S. government issued a or was about to issue a full rethink of its national defense strategy uh, that was very focused on great power competition on China and on Russia. And in fact, that was sidetracked by 9-11, and it gave China a window of opportunity to really assert itself on the world stage. And I, I think you can imagine going back to 2001 and having a much more engaged, focused United States, and that might have changed some Chinese behavior, certainly over the last 15 years or so. So now we're at a, now we're at a at, at a time where we're extremely focused on China it seems like that you have certainly people in both parties seem to view China to 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 greater lesser degrees as a as a competitor, as a rival, as a threat economically, militarily. So now we're engaged. Now now we now we are focused of course obviously it's a much more powerful country than it was in you know 2000 2001. So Looking at and and obviously one way it's manifesting itself is in this is in this trade conflict. So, given what you think 
where you think China is today and where they want to be. How does that, how does this trade issue resolve itself? I, people say, well, listen, if we, if we just have our, you know, the tariffs high enough, um, we're going to, we're going to change the Chinese economic model, but they've chosen this model of, of, uh, kind of, you know, you know, capitalism with Chinese characteristics. There's going to be a lot of state intervention. Uh, they'll, you know, what they, what they can't build, they'll steal. And if only we crank those tariffs up high enough, they're going to change that model. How likely is that? Well, I think we've got to break this into the short-term question and the long-term question. And let's take the short one first because it's easier. One question is, is the president going to make a deal with Xi Jinping before March 2nd? Um, I think the odds are yes. He's, He's going to strike some sort of deal for deficit reduction that probably will attempt to address some underlying structural issues, market reforms that would give us greater market access, that would uh, clamp down on some intellectual property theft. But the reality is they're unlikely to work, Um, in part because a lot of what the president and his advisors are looking for from China are massive structural changes to the Chinese economy that aren't going to happen in the next six weeks. And the Chinese are playing for time. They know as long as they can get to 2020, there's a good chance they're going to have another leader in office. And so they're not going to make huge changes unless they really feel that they're under the gun. So I think in the short term, where we're likely headed is towards a deal, a deal that will, in the short term... Buy more sorghum. Yep, exactly. You know, you'll see some changes on some tariffs. You know, autos Mm -hmm. was one example. But at the end of the day... A lot of the regulatory structures in China aren't going to change overnight, at least. And so, um, you know, it's hard for me to imagine, for example, the kind of um, reciprocity that people want to see. Take the um, tech sector. Mm-hmm. Google is not going to end up back in China, I don't think. Neither will Facebook or Twitter. But the Chinese are still going to be seeking high-tech access here in the United States. That's not going to go away. And even if the Chinese rename their program called Made in China 2025, right. this massive industrial project they have, it's not going to go away because China is still going to be a state-directed economy at the end of the day. Um, so I think y- you may see a deal that a lot of hawks in the administration find uh, is, is not going to address any of their underlying structural concerns about China. Are, I mean, is a is a, uh, and again, I think when you use the word deal, that that's that to me suggests a, a very short term uh, emphasis. But it, but what is the scenario where those China hawks would be satisfied? I mean, what could China actually promise that they could deliver? And I imagine then we'd have to mo- you know monitor them, and I'm not sure. That that's something we'd even be very good at, <laughs> monitoring the, this other economy year after year with timetables and goals. Uh, I'm not sure we're set up to do that. But so what what would be sort of a realistic deal you think would make those hawks happy where they feel like, you know, we've just gone through this. We've had this opportunity to confront China. We've raised up these tariffs. And now here at the end of the day, it's all about them buying more soybeans and, and, and sorghum and a little bit more market access and lots of promises. And that's it. And so, what 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 did that was that realistic get tough deal actually look like? Well, I, I think there are two views. One view uh, among some in the administration is you're probably not going to get a good deal from the Chinese, and the best thing you can do as a result, if they're not going to play ball, is to weaken the Chinese Communist Party and weaken the Chinese economy. And so, you should just keep the tariffs on. 
Certainly not my view, but there is a group in the administration that thinks that this is just not a China that's going to take on the kinds of reforms we would need to see. And so we have to protect ourselves. We have to detangle the two economies to the extent that we can. And, and, to, and then use those tariffs as mu- and hopefully getting you know, allies to, to join with us and just to keep them, um, to suppress that economy as much as possible so they don't catch us in technology, so, so they don't create these cutting-edge industries. They're still going to get richer. They're still going to become more technologically advanced. But to the, to the extent that we can make that harder for them, then that's that's what we'll do. I think that's one of the logics, and you know, it sounds a lot like that's like a cold. That's like that's Russia. Exactly what you know, I was going to we'll say. We'll not. We won't. We won't transfer technology. Still, they're going to throw a lot of PhD scientists, you know, at, at, at these issues, and they're going to get better rockets, and they're going to get. But but we're not going to help them. Yeah, and the, and the problem with this, of course, is that it it sounds a lot like a containment strategy. But the big difference here is that the Soviet Union wasn't the you know so economically intertwined with the rest of the world. Um, you know, the the Soviet bloc was largely unto itself. And here you have China, which is the number one trading partner of almost every country in Asia. So I, I don't think that's a particularly appealing argument to a lot of our friends in Asia who are looking to grow their economies. And a lot of the growth is coming from China. And so my view is actually if, if we try and contain China that way, it, we're likely to run up and into two problems. One is our, our allies and partners are going to push back on Washington pretty hard if it follows this policy. The second one is within Washington, which is that I'm not sure there's a bipartisan consensus on that kind of policy. Um, I think we're going to have to do things that are sound much less like containment and sound more positive uh, to try and change Chinese behavior or, or work with our friends in the region to do so. What, what, what would that look like? Yeah. So if, my, if it's not going to be if it's not going to be tariffs, and uh, it's not going to be going after Chinese companies that we feel uh, are stealing intellectual property, then what what is the what is the other sort of less confrontational, maybe more effective path look like? Yeah. So so I would call it collective balancing, and and the logic here is is fairly simple. Um, some people are very pessimistic about the U.S.-China relationship because they think the power shift happening between the United States and China is so severe that you can't slow it. You can't do anything unless you slow it down now, mm-hmm. right? So you have to slow Chinese growth. Uh, you have to slow the growth of its power, of its economy, maybe even push back ideologically. I think the alternative is to say, well, China's a strong country and it's been growing pretty fast for the last 30 years. But at the same time, the United States is still a pretty big economy. And if you look at the United States and its allies in Asia, we're incredibly strong. And then if you add allies in around the rest of the world, it's it's actually, we're in a far better position than people give us credit for. And therefore, you don't have to do these urgent moves to slow down the Chinese economy. You can be a little bit more confident in how you deal with China and push back where the Chinese are trying to undermine the system in a very pointed way, but without trying to forcefully slow Chinese growth. So I, I think that's the argument. And if, if you believe that, then actually what you're competing over is more the alignment decisions of regional states than it is the underlying power of China itself. Isn't, I mean, China's economy already is slowing. And isn't there sort of an assumption that they've kind of, that they have figured out an alternate path to wealth? That they are, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're run by, as, as the president said, they're all run, they're run by geniuses, 
engin- engineers, smart, really, really he would say killers, real smart guys, and they have figured out another path uh, that they know how to subsidize, and they and they and they're very good at stealing, and they uh, they know the they can they can pick the industries of the future, and they've uh, picked an alternate path path for growth. But yet the economy is is slowing. There's huge questions about how productive their economy is. So that might happen anyways. That if you that if you think that that kind of state directed economy ultimately is just not going to keep up with a with a freer more market driven economy or is is that i mean what's the what's the assumption about uh about the you know long term ability of the chinese economy to generate innovation and higher productivity well i i very much agree with what you just said i think the counter argument of course is that some people will say well look at the last 30 years if you bet against china it was a pretty bad bet you know 30 years just about of double digit gdp growth yearly and you know that's pretty remarkable. And it does look like the Chinese leadership has been very savvy in how they've managed the economy. But I think the last year, we've seen some real uh, difficulties for the Chinese Communist Party. And it's not at all clear that they are able to deal with them appropriately. And, you know, just the last few weeks, we've seen uh, Chinese economists coming out speaking pretty openly about their criticisms of the Communist Party's handling, not just of the relationship with Washington, but of the economy more generally, and suggesting that maybe the leadership in China doesn't have all the answers. And I think, you know, for a country that's had 30 straight years of remarkable growth rates, hitting a real rough patch like this is particularly tough. I'm not sure they know how the populace is going to deal with it. Um, And so I I think we have to be realistic that anything is possible. You could certainly see a resumption of Chinese growth at a a lower rate. You know, I don't think we're talking seven, eight, nine percent growth. I think we're talking four or five, six percent growth, um, which is still significant, but not what they've had. On the other hand, you know, they could not manage the capital accounts correctly. Uh, They could really end up in a pretty tricky situation. And they've used so much stimulus the last few years that they may not have that many bullets left. Yeah, I uh, I think about what kind of you know economy is conducive over the long term, you know, for um, technological progress and for using technology and innovation. And then I see the direction of that economy, and I and I you know you read these stories about the social credit system, you know, where they're going to monitor people. People, it's to me that sounds like they're moving toward. Extremely oppressive, really more totalitarian state, and is that the kind of state long term that is going to produce, you know, lots of breakthroughs and, and innovation, and where people would actually, if you're if you're a Chinese scientist and you have any flexibility about where you live, is that really the kind of environment you would want to live in? To me, that I don't know if the Chinese government is assuming that they've have it figured out and they have figured out an alternate path to growth, but that does. That to me does not sound like anything, you know. In Silicon Valley, they're like talking about like you know, you know, college, you know, startup ecologies and ecologies for growth. That doesn't sound like a very good ecology to me. That's right, and and in, I think in a lot of ways, if you're trying to figure out what what does the current Chinese economy, what does the system resemble most right now, you know, what comes to my mind is is the Soviet Union in the early '80s, where the the leadership knew that they had a problem. They knew that they were going to have to open up economically if they were going to spur the kind of growth they needed to compete in the future. But they also knew that politically that might not be possible. 
Um, so now you're in a particularly difficult situation where Xi Jinping has centralized power. He has said that he's not going to step down after 10 years as his predecessors have. Uh, and and yet, if he fails in his efforts to spur growth, that makes it even more difficult to replace him with someone who might have a different approach. So at the same time that Xi Jinping has centralized power, he's made the system much more fragile. And, you know, I, I think there are real problems in Beijing, and I don't think we should be so sure that they know how to solve it. What are the lessons that, or what is the current thinking, you think, um, in Chinese leadership about the decline of the Soviet Union and what is to, you know, what is, what, what is to be learned and what is to be avoided. Apparently it's don't open it, you know, don't open up the political system because once it's opened up, you're going to lose control of it. But what, 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 when they look, when they look, do you think when they look back on that and they compare it to where they are right now, what, what are they thinking? Do you, do you believe? Well, I think first of all, I'll say I, I'm not a deep expert on this, but I, I, you know, spent a fair amount of time talking to Chinese friends and China watchers about it. And I, I think the first lesson they've drawn is that Gorbachev made a mistake. He opened up way too fast and in a way that the party couldn't control. And so the Chinese Communist Party is not going to make that mistake again. And I think that's why we've seen Xi Jinping re-centralize control over the economy, over political expression. And, and so I think China's likely to see a doubling down on the Communist Party's rhetoric. And that is exactly the opposite of what I think would likely stimulate long-term growth in China. And that's why I think they're in a particularly difficult situation. Now, if, like me, you believe that as a result, China's got some real serious long-term headwinds, it means you, you might prefer as an American, rather than confronting China right now, to kind of wait them out and see whether the Chinese leadership can really manage their way out of this situation, rather than risking a serious confrontation at the moment. Um, which isn't to say that you shouldn't push back anywhere, but is just to say that you should push back in isolated cases um, that that really matter and not do a full court press, you might say. I think the other question other than how how is the trade war going to uh, uh, pan out, and I'm sure you get asked this, is a real war. What do you think the odds are for an actual military conflict in the region, the United States and China? Some may find this surprising, but my view is it's very unlikely in the near term. I think in most part because the Chinese don't want to have a conflict with the United States. And they recognize that although China has built an incredible amount of military material, and they are quite capable now, that going toe-to-toe with the United States, which has had combat experience for the last two decades just about, um, is going to be a really difficult thing. And it's not at all clear that they can do that. So on issues in the South China Sea, on issues in the East China Sea, I think it's unlikely that you're going to see a conflict, um, at least in the near term. In the longer term, I think the chances are going to go up significantly when China believes that it can be powerful enough to really challenge the military uh, power of the United States and its allies. And the contingency I worry most about is Taiwan. Uh, because I think there's no question that Xi Jinping has made this central to his platform. He wants to get Taiwan back, and he's suggested that that might have to happen by 2035, potentially. And we'll see how U.S. policymakers go, but I think the tendency now is to believe that Taiwan's a democracy that should be supported. And so I think we're really going to have a pretty tense situation in the next 
10, 15 years as China becomes more confident about its ability to win in that contingency. Finally, and briefly, because I'm sure you don't want to give the whole thing away. So you're right. You're writing a book uh, as uh, about as uh, you know, we have emerging powers rise and existing powers decline. I assume we are. I assume, assume the United States is the declining power in that situ- in that scenario. So what do the declining powers do? How do they act? What should what should we be doing if we don't want to decline? Well, you know, no one wants to be a declining power. I don't, uh, no. no one likes being labeled a declinist. Uh, but but I think you're right that if you just look in relative terms, there's no question that China relative to the United States is stronger today than it was 10 or 20 years ago. And so in terms of relative decline, yeah, we that is occurring. Um, my view is that the hard part for American strategists is that we've had the luck for years and years of trying to maintain the status quo. The status quo was great for us. We got to build the post-war order. We had you know, many of the strongest countries in the world aligned with us. And so we just want the world to stay largely the way it is. And that means that actually as strategists, we struggle sometimes because when we try and think about, well, what are our interests here and there, we're stuck in the past with the way we've done things for a long time. And it's really difficult to break out of those models and say, okay, we might be a little less powerful five or 10 years from now. Where where are the areas where we'd be willing to give a little bit? And which are the areas that actually we have to hold firm on? And those are tough decisions, but they're decisions we have to make. I'll give you one example, which is Um, The British Empire faced the same question just over 100 years ago. And just before World War I, the the answer that Britain came to was that its major challenger was likely to be Germany. And it had forces all over the world, but it had to focus on the German challenge. And it re-centralized its forces to do that. It focused its navy, which had been really a global navy, largely back in the North Atlantic to deal with with the Germans. And I think we're starting to see some of those same kinds of debates happen where, look, we may end up having to take some risk in other areas of the world, maybe in the Middle East, maybe a little bit more risk that NATO is going to have to hold itself up uh, so that we can manage the China challenge. Now, I think that's the logic, whether American strategists can do that after being so used to the status quo for decades and decades. That that is a tough question. My guest today has been Zach Cooper. Zach, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me.